sing the song for Mr. King. Jimmy King is the best wrestler. He's the bestler. Better than all the wrestlers. He's got class. He's really fast. He'll rule ass. He'll rule that ass. Jimmy. La la da. Jimmy. King. Okay. We're still kind of working on that end part. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Alright, we're recording. Alright, so hello and welcome to this very special bonus episode of The Contrarians. Uh, we are right and you are wrong. Um, it is March 23rd of 2016. We're getting close to that special time of the year, one week from today. I leave for Dallas, Texas. Vacation for WrestleMania. It is WrestleMania season. 19 years ago today, a star was born, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, lost in one of the most famous pro wrestling matches of all time against Bret Hart. Uh, 15 years ago today, Vince McMahon purchased World Championship Wrestling in a move that forever shook the foundation of uh, pro wrestling, sports entertainment, whatever you want to call it. But not before our feature film of today could be released. Uh, as back on April 7th of the year 2000, we were treated to Ready to Rumble, starring David Arquette and Scott Cann. Uh, again, my name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, by Julio. Um, I know, Julio, this bonus episode was solely my idea, and I'm hoping that you were able to take something away from it. Oh, I took a lot out of it. <laughs> I I can say, I mean, I've been your friend for a while. I've attended a few wrestling parties here at your place, uh, but it wasn't until I watched this movie that I truly understood what's so awesome about wrestling. <laughs> So now I really feel like I'm in your headspace. I finally, not only have I gotten wrestling, but I've also gotten Alex Mattis. And I'm actually a little disappointed now that the mystery is gone because now I have you figure it out. So you got me pegged. Yeah. I mean, I have to like take you to Peru or something. So we're like uneven levels again. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, what a great movie. I can't wait to get started on this. So we're not going to, you know, it's not going to be like a standard episode. We're kind of condensing this to a bite-sized one. So we're not going to break it down beat for beat. But uh, do you have any uh, reviews to kick us off with there, Julio? Yes, I have quite a few. Uh, because this movie, as awesome as it is, had uh, had a hard time of it at uh, the good old Rotten Tomatoes. 23%. 23%. Uh, one of those people on the 77% uh, is Frank Sweetek from One Guy's Opinion who starts us off by saying, a movie made by yahoos for yahoos, the cinematic equivalent of a body slam in which the viewer is on the receiving end. Jeffrey Westhoff from Northwest Herald in Crystal Lake, Illinois, says, features a shameless cross-promotion we had better get used to in this era of media conglomerates. 
the script could be mistaken for the portfolio of the Time Warner Empire. Thor Thorson from Real.com says, Not even a centuries-long post-1985 Chevy Chase retrospective could compare to the agony that is ready to rumble. <laughs> Dustin Putman from TheFilmFile.com says, Take Dumb and Dumber, add a wrestling angle to the storyline, and strip the proceedings of all signs of wit, interest, and laughs. Yes. <laughs> and What's <finally>? wrong? <laughs> And finally, Susan Luskina from USA Today says, very succinctly, a pile driver to the brain. Well, what what was the critic's name? Susan, I, 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 I don't know, her last name is a bunch of consonants. Ruloskina? Well, I'm Susan. I'm sure she would mispronounce my last name, too. If you do your fucking research, you know, a pile driver affects your neck, not your fucking brain. So. But it's so hard, like, you know, when they land that, that it... The pain goes all the way up to your brain. I'm assuming. I guess, yes. I think. I mean, this movie taught me that wrestling is not just for guys. There's lots of female fans in this movie. Really? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. There's that the old lady, girl from the burger shop. Oh, uh, that's right. And then the dancers, Rose McGowan. Yeah. Uh, so the story of Rated Rumble is a pretty simplistic one. We follow our two main characters, Gordy and Sean, played by David Arquette and Scott Can, respectively. And uh, star making performances. Yes, uh, they are overgrown children who still believe that professional wrestling. I mean, pro wrestling is a real, legitimate sporting event. But you know, there are interest, very you know, intricacies of it that may be predetermined. Uh, but they think it's beat for beat real, and they live in a constant state of childlike wonder. Um, you know, just for comedic purposes, they they drive a sewage truck around town. Well, they, they work for the sewage company that, or right. whatever. They live in bumfuck Wyoming, uh, and basically the highlight of their life is getting to go to Monday Nitro and see their wrestling hero, Jimmy King, played by Oliver Platt, who, man. It would be a star-making performance, and he hadn't been already a star when yeah. this happened, I think. Um, Oliver Platt is screwed out of his title and his promotion in a, a famous double-cross, as they'd say, in in the industry by... Evil wrestling promoter uh, Titus Sinclair, played by Cipher from The Matrix. What's his Joe Pantoliano? Okay. Who, uh, as I was watching this movie, I was wondering: Is Joe Pantoliano the poor man's Paul Giamatti, or is Paul Giamatti the poor man's Joe Pantoliano? Because really, they have those. They, they gravitate towards the same parts. I wonder. I think they both like audition for the same things, and sometimes you get Pantoliano, sometimes you get Giamatti. But really, you could totally see Paul Giamatti crushing it yeah, in the bad guy's role here. That's absolutely true. To me, Paul Giamatti came on. He really came to prominence several years after this. Uh, so so he he's is the poor like, man's Joe Pantoliano. Pantoliano is 1987 Axl Rose, whereas Paul Giamatti is 2002 VMAs coming back with Buckethead <laughs> Axl Rose. <laughs> It's the same basic thing, but a bit more bloated, you know, a bit more cracky in the voice. It's still completely capable of achieving greatness, Absolutely. given the perfect circumstances. Like in this case, Joe Pantoliano just shines. I'd much rather would have seen Joe Pantoliano in duets than uh, Paul Giamatti. But would you have liked Paul Giamatti in The Matrix? Oh, man. That suit. They would have had to pour him into that. <laughs> But evil promoter Titus Sinclair does a you know a dreaded double cross a la Vince McMahon and Bret Hart on Jimmy King, screws him out of the title in favor of the big heel Diamond Dallas Page. And if you think I'm being douchey by using all these insider terms, you should watch you know Ready to Rumble. They 
They they throw them out like they're going out of style. And yet, for a newcomer like me, I mean, I was just I felt welcome. <laughs> I I knew there was stuff that I was missing, but there was plenty for they, me to. They chew weren't on. insulting your intelligence. No, they were not. Actually, they were stimulating it because this movie from the very beginning, uh, and especially at that crucial moment where the double cross happens, it's all about the blurring between reality and fantasy. So. You it, you have these these protagonists, these two guys, uh, Scott Kahn and uh, what's his name from uh, Scream, Dewey, David Arquette, David Arquette, uh, who are dreamers. Sean and Gordy. You know, you could call them uh, man children, but they're also dreamers. And this is kind of their coming of age story. Mm-hmm. By the end of the movie, they have grown and they've taken certain steps to make their dreams a reality. But the movie makes them face what the real world is like. So it makes them have to deal with the fact that this thing that they they thought was 100% real is actually kind of staged. But the way the movie does this is by turning this thing that's usually staged into an actual fight that that gets bloody and brutal. And it's one of the most gripping action sequences I've seen in a long time. As they say in the industry, they work themselves into a shoot. So that's that's what they call it. Yeah. When like everybody goes off script and then people get hurt. Is okay, so a work is the script, a shoot is real, but then when you over script something and it turns real, you work yourself into a shoot is what it's called. Okay. Well, this is like the mother of all shoots because <laughs> because uh Oliver Platt is supposed to win this match. Right? If yeah. I understood the lingo, yeah. <laughs> he was supposed to come out on top. But Joey Pantoliano, he he tells everybody else, apparently every single fighter in that in that arena that sports entertainer. When <laughs> when the time comes, they're all supposed to unleash on him and not with like staged violence, but like actual violence. So so uh Oliver Platt gets his ass kicked and he puts up a hell of a fight. Once he realizes that things have gotten real, he actually defends himself he proves to be kind of resourceful so it's not like oh he was not a real athlete or a real fighter he shows that he can actually fight he can defend himself but ultimately he has like 20 guys in the ring beating him up so he he loses and it is the mother of all shoots <laughs> it is and he just uh it's heartbreaking to see because to us the viewers and amplified by the fact that arcade and khan are just beside themselves with grief when this happens their hero lies bloodied and almost in a coma. David Arquette's character, Gordy, screams, it's not even a pay-per-view, which basically implying this, you know, we're not even paying to see this, which if you knew WCW's business model, you know that line is just soaked in so many layers of irony. These two man-children learn that, you know, there is a bit more to what they believed, but also a bit more to this man that they worship in Jimmy King and that uh, when they finally do meet him, He's not all he was cracked up to be. Uh, along the road to finally encountering him, they meet his ex-wife, um, one of the aunts from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yes, I knew I knew her from somewhere. Uh, his son that he's abandoned. Also his parents. Uh, and along the way, they encounter the Shermanator from the American Pie franchise. Who, Everybody's in this movie. Yeah, as is the, the rapping grandma from Wedding Singer. And so many other movies where she's a funny grandma, just like here. Here, she's, she's a wrestling fan. Do you she, have any clue what her name is? I didn't look it up. I have no idea. Yeah. I've, I'd rather leave the magic on the screen. and I don't want Agreed. to know that she's a real person. I'd rather... Much like the Shermanator, he's right. the Shermanator. He's the Shermanator, and I'm just happy to see him working. Uh, well, I guess this was before American Pie. Uh, the first American Pie would have been out before this. Oh, okay. Well, then, because of the Shermanator, he got a chance to, to this play was, with the This big was boys. the layover on the, the way to American Pie 2. 
in which he got to hook up with uh, Shannon. What's the Dorothy? Hot... I haven't seen American Pie too. No, who's the hot foreign exchange student in American Pie? Shermanator hooks up with the. You haven't seen American Pie two? I've seen the first one. I've seen the last one, which is terrible. So American Pie two is fantastic, but yeah, um, Nadia. Okay. And what's her name in real life? I her, her shoot time, name. Her time has passed. <laughs> not her work name. I what's her shoot name? Movie. It's not Shannon Elizabeth, is it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's her. All right. She's that's... in uh, Jane's Helen Bob's Strike Back. Oh, that's a shoot. Take a drink every time we say shoot in this episode. <laughs> Teaching you wrestling lingo is like my favorite thing we've ever done on this podcast. <laughs> so they finally encounter Jimmy King and they talk him in. They coerce him into, you know, you're still the champion and he's trying to tell you it's all a show. And uh, basically they still convince him into getting, to following their game plan. They're going to get him face to face with uh, evil promoter Titus Sinclair and he's going to get his revenge. And they basically road trip across the country using lit for the second time in the movie my own worst enemy yep uh it's well i mean you can't have it just once because you're not playing the whole song so at least you can do is play the beginning twice exactly you have also the chorus in that song but the bridge is what really makes it so you have to utilize all you can yeah and you know the title i'm my own you know my own worst enemy and Mm -hmm. that that just reflects it's such a reflection on most of the characters here Mm -hmm. they they're just getting in the way of their own dreams and on the not just the two protagonists, but also Oliver Platt. He clearly, by the end of the movie, realized that, yeah, he could have done much better. But he's kind of gotten used to just slumming it uh, uh, because, you know, that everything was staged. So he was not the athlete that I guess he, he could have been and that he becomes at the end of the movie. It'd be about seven or eight years later that Mickey Rourke would follow and basically, you know, he would take the path that Oliver Platt took here. Yeah, but, you know, that movie, I think it took itself a little too seriously. I think it was missing a little bit of the humor that you have here. Uh, It didn't have David Arquette, basically. Exactly. David Arquette is just amazing in this movie. He He, was born to play Gordy. Yes. I If if I hadn't had the benefit of having seen Scream 1 and Scream 4, I would have believed that he's just such an idiot in real life. (laughs) But but because I know he can play other roles, then I, I'm even more amazed at his performance here because he's – Wait, have you not seen Scream 2 or Scream 3? No, I haven't. We covered this on the Scream 4 episode. I know, but like now it's just coupled in with this American uh, Pie thing. Well, no, like, I've seen – I've seen <laughs> – That's right. Like do your sandwiches have any fillings or is it just two pieces of bread that you eat? But I keep the crust. Okay. So, you know, I get the important stuff. You're uh, a monster. <laughs> no, I, I actually I, – I've seen most of Scream 2. Um, so I've got plenty of Dewey in my mind yeah. to compare to, and I also saw him in uh, Never Been Kissed. I've, I've seen other movies where he doesn't play a character that's anywhere near as purely idiotic as the one that he plays here, and that's a good thing because you need the humor. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, can you imagine if they played this story for for real without any comedy? This would be such a downer. It, it would. would be the wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to have David Arquette in there. You have to have the comedic relief. So they finally get Jimmy King face-to-face with uh, Sinclair, the promoter, and it leads to a big kerfuffle in which, you know, uh, Jimmy King throws some shoot punches in there, and it leads to them booking a big match for the the Royal Bash pay-per-view coming up. It's a cage match that if Jimmy King wins, he gets the belt, he gets $1 million, he gets his contract. But if he loses, he can never wrestle again. Yeah, I was I was pretty bummed when you told me that this was not something that existed in real life because that is amazing the the cage thing which we eventually get to see. It's like a 
fight on three. It's like when you play chess with like three different boards, <laughs> three dimensional chess is like three dimensional wrestling. It's like it, that Castlevania where you think you've beaten it, but then the castle turns upside down and you have yes. to go back through it. You keep going, you keep going, and if you lose, you go all the way to the beginning of the castle. <laughs> it, it's kind of like that. So on his quest for this big cage match to win back his dignity, which, you know, quick side note, anytime a wrestler, the stipulation is if they lose, they're never going to wrestle again, they're probably going to lose. But in this case, they turn it around. But he has to learn. He has to get back to basics. He has to learn. He needs to train properly. And, you know, his first step is he lines up a couple shots of tequila and then a raw egg. Um, also in this sequence, my absolute uh, favorite quote in the movie in which Mean Gene Okerlund asks, do people think I'm sexy? That's neither here nor there. Uh, what is here is we get Academy Award winner Martin Landau enters the fray as yes. Sal Bandini, the wrestling trainer. He is just as old as you picture him right now. If you say Martin Landau, you don't think, oh, Martin Landau back in like Mission Impossible, the TV series days. You mm -hmm. think Martin Landau like when he won the Oscar, you know, or like from Rounders. He's old <laughs> with glasses. He's not a wrestler. And yet mm -hmm. he kicks so much ass in this movie. Mm -hmm. He is, I wrote it here, before MMA, there was MML, like Martin <laughs> Motherfucking Lando. <laughs> Genius. He, yeah, he is he is funny. He is really good with the stunts. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really, he even gets later on, he gets actual dramatic mm -hmm. scenes. There's, a, there's some acting with capital A here. And he's teaching the high school wrestling team. And he has that great line where he says, uh, don't stop applying pressure until you hear cartilage snap or they crap in their pants. <laughs> Um, so from this point, Sinclair gets wind of it. He sends his goons to attack uh, Martin Landau, making sure that he hasn't trained him anymore. Uh, we get Martin Landau putting Perry Saturn in like a step over cross choke. And he says, who's your daddy, bitch? <laughs> that alone, if even without all the greatness of this movie, that alone would have been enough for, to make, for me to make it worth it. The Absolutely. Price of uh, there's also, I mean... There's one big part of of this, which is the Rose McGowan subplot. Mm -hmm. She's uh, this dancer. She's super a nitro hot. girl. Yes, whatever you call them. <laughs> we had the nitro girls. So basically, WCW wrestling cheerleaders. Yes, exactly. Ah. They, they thought like you know, oh well, the NFL is cheerleaders. We need some too, and they were the nitro girls. And all of the chicks in there, except Rose McGowan, were shoot nitro girls. Um, Are they all like two phased? Uh, <laughs> probably they're in the they're in the professional wrestling business, so probably. Uh, yeah. Shawn Michaels ended up marrying one of them, but uh, yeah, uh, Rose McGowan had her role. The the Sasha character was specifically written for this film. It was good that they got such a, a comedic actress. Somebody has Rose McGowan doesn't get to shine in comedy uh, so often, and so I was glad to see her here really go for it. Well, you know what's really interesting too is when you go back into the writing and uh, directing of this film. Uh, we'll get into this later, but written by Stephen Brill and directed by Brian Robbins, kind of turns things on its head. We are familiar with the dynamic between um, David Arquette and Rose McGowan, but we're familiar with that of being brother and sister. And this, they're a love interest. Uh, in the first Scream, Dewey was Rose McGowan's big brother. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I so, haven't seen that movie in 20 years. But I can see like your eyes widened as I was explaining that. Uh, now there's so many layers, extra layers to this movie. Uh, no, but even without knowing that, you just it turns to your head because you're thinking, okay, this, she's a hot girl, mm -hmm. and you just expect her to be, even after you figure out, because you, you figure it out way before the movie tells you, uh, that she is double-crossing them, that she's mm -hmm. really informing the bad guys. She's, mm -hmm. He's just hooking up with uh, David Arquette, to get intel. But even before then, you don't expect it to be funny. And, and she is really funny. There's this awesome 
comedic sequence where she has her first date with him and they just stay in and they basically have sex, but the entire sex thing is staged like a wrestling match. And that was just, that's genius. And I don't think that Rose McGowan gets to that very often in her career or anybody for that matter. So, well, especially with Rose McGowan now, you can't even tell if she's having fun because her face is basically just molded into one shape. But yeah, back then you can tell she's having fun. She's Absolutely. just like laughing and being doing the little jerky motions that you associate with comedy because it's not a naturalistic performance. It's just more like, oh, well, I'm putting on a show. And in this case, is it happens on two levels because she's putting on a show for Dewey and she's putting on a show for the audience. So she's putting on a show for Gordy. She's it, putting on a show for Dewey. It'd be it, a not, bit weirder. Not Dewey, but we'll call him Dewey. <laughs> to me, he will always be Dewey. He'll be Officer Dewey. But yes, as you said, as we lead to this big discovery that uh, Sasha Rose McGowan is an insider. She's just a snake in the grass. Uh, she, you know, is a double crosser. She is intel for Sinclair and uh, the whole gang of Rudos. In that, uh, she helped the setup to have Sal Bandini jumped. He's in a hospital bed. Um, you know. We're filled with so much comedic joy throughout this film and so much childlike wonder. But this is the scene that brings us back to Earth when Martin Landau does deliver his Oscar scene in the bed. This is why they went after Landau for... for Because, you know, he doesn't have that much screen time, mm-hmm. but he really makes it count here. This is where he concentrated all his Oscar-winning abilities, and he delivers this very inspirational speech. Where he says the way to attack a man is to attack his strengths. And Scott Kahn has the gall to try to interrupt him. And be like, no, I think, I think you mean weaknesses. <laughs> no, Scott, you shut up, Scott Kahn. And it's brilliant. And it's like an allegory for life. He says, you know, no one expects it. Everyone expects them to attack their weaknesses. If you go straight up the middle, they won't know what hit them. Out of, out of everybody in the movie, Lanto is the only one that's really... He has achieved happiness, and he is perfectly fine no matter what happens. Even when he's in the hospital, he's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like a kid again. I'm fine. Uh, and he has definitely wisdom to impart to everybody else. And, you know, being truthful, his apartment, Martin Landau's in the film, is what my dream house is. It's just a big open room with a living room and a kitchen and a wrestling ring in the middle of it. <laughs> that is what heaven looks like to me. Uh you know, uh, Dewey, I guess his police badge was still somewhere around because he was a detective on the case and tracked down that, you know, Sasha was up to no good, dumped her cold, left her in the middle of the fucking street. As you should. Yeah. If your girl is informing on you, <laughs> you need to cut that string right off the bat. Uh, it, it's a good moment for Dewey. He will get much more uh, juicy uh, scenes later on in the movie, but but here it was. I think it's the first time that we see him not being a clown, yeah. and which is good because that's again this is a journey of his his growth as a person. And he has the amazing line of "We're going back to Wyoming to find our heart," and she says, "Can I come?" And he says, "No, because you don't have one." And then the door the door closes <laughs> in. If I'm not mistaken, Kid Rock starts playing. Is that Cowboy the- by Kid Rock yes. starts playing? <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning of the film, we are informed that Gordy's dad is a police officer, a local sheriff, and he wants Gordy to follow in the family tradition. It's kind of cast aside pretty quickly because Gordy and uh, Sean kind of run away with the circus pretty far off, or pretty quickly off the bat. Uh, but as soon as they get back to town, his dad's able to track him down. His comes... dad, his dad, played by uh, the poor man's Chris Cooper. Yes. Yeah. I don't know the actor's name, but yes, I would agree with you there. Pretty much. By that matter, also... Tex Richmond. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
law enforcement official number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, and also uh, Oliver Platt's son. He looks a lot like Alfred Molina. I wrote him down as poor man's Alfred Molina. I mean, 30 years younger or 40 years younger, but... It'd be incredible if they did, like, looper prosthetics on Alfred Molina for this <laughs> shit. Uh, Gordy's dad comes back and scoops him up and um, says, you know, fuck wrestling, it's stupid, and has an amazing line. Gordy says, I'm following my dreams. He says, Charlie Manson was following his dreams. Joseph Stalin, Michael Bolton. <laughs> he is... Making he makes him study for the police exam. Yeah, this is uh, it's so amazing that it doesn't get that much screen time because it doesn't need to. It gets to the point really quickly. But the whole subplot with the dad and the whole being a cop that really that hits hard in a couple of different areas. One is obviously I I imagine most wrestling fans have had this speech at one point or another mm-hmm. from their parents. Maybe not about being a cop, but certainly about like okay, cut it out with the bullshit and just focus on real life. And uh, so that's very brave of the movie to go there. Now, I'm to trying make really it... hard not to cry from that because <laughs> it's so close to home. But now to make it also very specifically about police work, the fact that this guy, you don't have to be a genius to see that David Arquette is not policeman material. No matter what you've seen <laughs> in the Scream series, he's not supposed to be a cop. And yet his father, who is a police officer, is convinced that this is the path that he's supposed to be in his father of, who's a police officer that pulls a gun on him when he suggests that he doesn't want to be a cop yes or he you know and he shoots the fridge when he gets bad news yeah uh, now this guy he is convinced that not only is every kid supposed to take the test to be a cop but also that he will pass the test to be a cop which answers the question how is it that there's so many shitty cops out there mm-hmm. oh well of course because their parents are just like making them be cops <laughs> even though they'd rather be watching wrestling shows well, it also leads to the question, why are there so many shitty wrestlers out there? Oh, it's because their parents who are wrestlers are forcing them to be wrestlers. <laughs> Anytime you see somebody be shitty at any profession, it's because their parents made them. Bray Wyatt. Uh, so Gordy is studying for the police exam, and uh, Sean and Jimmy King, you know, they come up to his window. It's... More of like a say anything type scene. Cause I was thinking Dawson's Creek. There but, you go. But yeah, it's the same. Because they literally come to his window. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so they say, you know, we got to head to Vegas. We need you by our side. Come on. And Gordy's like, my dream is stupid. I have to be a police officer. So it's just kind of left at that. And uh, Sean and Jimmy King enlist a group of yokels, uh, local yokels, to take him to Vegas, you know, because he does need a posse because he's rolling deep in there. So they go to Vegas for the event Royal Bash, and it's at that point in time. Yeah, well, I was going to say uh, it's it's kind of a very smart move in the front part of the movie because you think that, oh, you're going to get the thing that right, as they're leaving to go to Vegas, that Arquette's going to join them right away, yeah. right? But he doesn't. He, I mean, he shows up, but he shows up to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, wow, we're really – we are losing Arquette for the third act. That's – Unexpected. I didn't see that coming, and it really, it really hurts. It's like Martin Sheen dying in The Departed. Yeah, you didn't see that coming. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, 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 he didn't quite splatter in the <laughs> explosion of guts, but but he did say goodbye very definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's cool because he drives home that point of well, growing up, and at some point you stop dreaming and you have to buckle down and face reality, and that's what this guy is doing. Uh, so a part of you wonders, maybe this is the right path for them, and the guys that are going off to Vegas to participate in this match that has insane odds against them they're they're being foolish mm-hmm. uh 
and how the movie resolves that is pretty masterful. Yeah, and knowing that they're going to be in over their head, like I said, they basically hold an open tryout for locals in the Wyoming area, and they assemble a, a team of three that are going to be there, you know, just in case shit gets out of hand. Uh, they head to Vegas. Uh, it's the Royal Bash pay-per-view. We're shown the actual cage. It's not just a normal cage, which is just usually four walls around the ring. It's a triple cage, the big surrounding domed cage with another with another on top of it. Um, Jimmy King is obviously beside himself backstage readying himself. Uh, Sean Scott can has an amazing suit as he debuts a pimp red suit. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, probably my favorite scene. I have my favorite gags in the film, but my favorite scene in which Titus Sinclair, uh, is in a dark room alone with sting. And we haven't seen sting at all in the entire film. And not sting the singer. For all of you who are like me, I have nothing to do with wrestling. Because <laughs> when Alex said, oh, that's Sting, I'm like, really? <laughs> uh, there is an incredible picture from like the late 80s, early 90s of Sting with Sting in a headlock. It's the two of them. <laughs> um, the wrestler Sting, Steve Borden. Dark room, and Sinclair is basically you know, telling him, I've invested a lot of money in making sure that Jimmy King doesn't win. And he literally says to him, I will kill you if you fuck this up. As I explained to you, the reason this is my favorite scene is because uh, this movie's gone to such great lengths to overexpose professional wrestling as a show and a sham. But this scene and this character arc with Sting, no matter what, they want to preserve his fictional character on air. And it makes for pretty fascinating television. He's standing there with a bat. And I thought that the whole idea was that he was telling him to go out and like break uh, Oliver Platt's legs before the show. And that didn't happen. <laughs> That's where I like realized my wrestling nerdom has overtaken my regular social abilities because I honestly didn't think I had to explain to you why he had a bat. <laughs> Sting... Well, you know, some of us, Alex. <laughs> Sting carries around a bat. It's a symbol of I, power. I honestly, I figured it out by the end of the movie. But at the time, I'm like, oh, something's going to happen with that bat. Not quite. So it does lead to the ultimate showdown. And it is, you know the most overbooked mess of all time in which Jimmy King and Diamond Dallas Page are fighting. There's, you know, different wrestlers running in. Uh, Jimmy King's son enters the ring at one point in time. Uh, it gets, that's when it gets real. Because up till that point, it's kind of what you were expecting. Mm -hmm. You know, he's fighting a losing battle, but he's making do, and Scott Can is helping him from the sidelines. Uh, but then what you were not expecting is, is for his son to show up, which is, I mean, the logistics of that <laughs> are mind-blowing. But I'll welcome the surprise because that was, that was really cool. And, uh, and I really, it, it really puts some personal drama in the ring. Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy hesitates, and then that leads to his temporary downfall. And luckily, he's rescued by a bunch of people I didn't know, but obviously you didn't. <laughs> Bill Goldberg, Booker T, Billy Kidman all make the save, but they can't get through the cage because it's locked. So lo, lo and behold, a big uh, police motorcycle drives through the cage, and it is uh, Officer Gordy Dewey on top of it. David Arquette saves the day, as he does in real life. <laughs> he saves the day. He's dressed like a cop. So <laughs> Why not at this point? Why not? I mean, obviously his dad, he really wants him to follow that path, and yet he let him go fulfill his dream. So he kind of got the best of both worlds. He got mm -hmm. to dress like a cop, and he got to be a wrestler, or at least participate in a wrestling match because it's not just him breaking the gate he just sticks around for the rest of the match yeah he hits a good looking spear and you know he he helps you know jimmy king eventually does win 
not before almost murdering Diamond Dallas Page. He slams him through all three layers of the cage. And DDP. Oh, yeah, I'm glad it wasn't just me because I thought that that was a, a deadly fall. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. maybe I just don't get wrestling. This, this just happens all the time. It's so it's so excellently shot. Just the way it just seems like endless with him flailing throughout the air. He just keeps through. breaking through through levels of the of this cage, and I, I I thought I counted like five, and I thought it was supposed to be only three. Fucking DDP was old at that point. You know that was a stunt double. He wasn't gonna take that bump. <laughs> Um, but Jimmy King wins. He decrees that Sean is his new manager and that Gordy is his new tag team partner. And, um, basically the movie wraps up where it began with, uh, Scott Cannon, David Arquette telling the local kids at the local Seven Eleven, you know, what's what, uh, but not before the closing shot of the movie is Martin Landau in a mobile and uh, Martin Landau in a mobile hot tub with two beautiful women on each side in which he says, God bless America. Amen. <laughs> but no, I, he's a uh, tough old man. No, um, I'm, I'm ready for real talk. There's a lot of real talk to be done. About oh, this yes, movie. there is. A strange turn of events. <laughs> Explain to me how this happened. Well, this was around Ready to Rumble? Yeah, I did Ready to Rumble. It was sort of afterwards, and the movie didn't do so great right when it came out. So um, I, I was, you know, I was making an appearance on WCW just once and just jump into the ring and, like, get involved, and then someone, like, beat me up, and then I was done. You, you agreed know? to do that? Yeah, I, I know I agreed to do that. <laughs> That makes any sense, but um, so they beat me up and um, and they liked sort of how I got beat up, I guess. So they asked now, me. Now, were these guys back. actually hitting you? Or, I mean, what was what? How you know how much? Uh, we all know it's uh, there's it's, a certain it's amount of contact. to say the least. But were they were they throwing you around? Yeah, well, you get you know they call it taking bumps when you when you take a bump. Uh, <laughs> this and, time of night, that refers to something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's you right. know what I mean at that point. Uh, but so you, so you but how did you get the title? Well, um, they just asked me to sort of be a part of it and kept me, they said, can you commit to being on the show for a couple of weeks and uh, do a pay-per-view? And I was like, sure. And then, you know, part of that was they gave me the belt. I was... How was did a, you get the belt? Though? You actually beat the champion? It was a strange turn of events. You know, it was like a, a you know, a four-way dance, they call it, I guess. <laughs> right. It was me and uh, Diamond Dallas Page, who was my buddy, little Page. Come on, bang. Right. I just who you hit the, over the head. The diamond cutter. Yeah, and... Um, Against uh, uh, Jeff Jarrett and a, a guy named Eric Bischoff, who right. is the owner of the company. And then somehow I won the contest and won the belt. But Dave, here's what happens. You're an actor. You're there. You're really doing this kind of as a, as right. a promotion for right around. We get things going again right. in, in that world. And you end up agreeing and you get the belt. <laughs> but you're actually at this WCW with, and the fans. They're crazy yeah. about the wrestling. Yeah. How did they take to the belt going to an actor? They didn't take to it very well. I got, I got slammed. When you got so the hard. belt, what, what was the crowd's reaction like? David, or were well, they throwing things? Some were. I mean, there was just like gasps and people fainting, <laughs> and then uh, you know, there were people crying. No, how? Why? This can't be real. He's not a real wrestler. I know. They went off. They're like, you know. Uh, I would understand if it was someone like Robert De Niro or who's this guy? Some pitchman for a telephone company. How could he? Right, right. They took it all serious. I was like, come on, you know. It's just... Dialed down them. That could have been like your signature yeah. move somehow. Well, I did say I'm going to 1-800-kick the right. time. Just but they... that, was my, that was my line. Ready to rumble. I'm not lying, Julio, when I say... Trying to teach you wrestling vernacular is one of the highlights of this podcast we've done so far. Um, but now we're trying to get into the, the meat and potatoes about this. Uh, now it's when it gets ugly. Yeah, this movie. 
this thing that happened. Um, I'm going to drop some history on you here shortly, but let's go ahead and get these reviews. Okay, well, uh, some people actually liked Ready to Rumble. I'm, I'm one of them, I, it, for I'm sure different reasons than what you're about to say. I was going to say, do you like it as much as you would go out and write a positive review about it on Rotten Tomatoes? I could write a very, very long piece on what this movie symbolizes. But would it have a tomato or would it have a, a green splatter? It is a very, very, very bad movie. So it would be a green. It would be a, a green, green splatter. splatter. Okay. It would. It would be a dawn of justice. Uh, well, so it'd be awesome. I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm, you're sending mixed signals here. Um, well, some people liked it, and I think that they are not wrestling fans. But I don't know. You tell me. Phoebe Flowers from the Miami Herald says the most amazing thing about Ready to Rumble is how bad it isn't. So she gets. She starts it off on the right huh. path. Uh, e Online, not attributing to any single person, just E Online says we feel dirty, but we liked it. So E Online has some issues. On the other hand, getting a little more specific, Andrew here here from Salon.com says a work of deviant genius, a hilarious hog wallow in juvenile mindlessness with a gentle spirit of self mockery and a heart of gold. He likes his his big words. Mm. Ross Anthony from Hollywood Report Card says, Man, oh man, this movie had me laughing so hard. Tears were running down the creases of my smile-swollen cheeks. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Maybe he is a wrestling fan. (laughs) There there are some legitimately funny moments in this film. Hey, I I laugh. I don't think any of them have to do with wrestling. but Uh, Finally, Steve Rhodes from Internet Reviews says, Aiming every shot for the bleachers, the cast and crew hit one home run after another. He got his sports mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, Ready to Rumble released on April 7th of 2000, as I had said. Box office of $24 which, yeah, I guess I could see with the parties involved how you would get that budget. Uh, This movie somehow made $12.4 million, which, that's a moral victory in and of itself. Um, I mean, it's like well, every wrestling fan just decided to go and like buy a ticket no. just to see what it was. No, nope. We'll get to that in just a moment. <laughs> um, written by Stephen Brill of Mighty Ducks fame, Mighty Ducks one, two, and three. He wrote, directed by Brian Robbins, who directed Good Burger, and most recently his claims to fame are Norbit, Meet Dave, and A Thousand Words. Julio, as I was trying to explain to you while we were watching this, uh, you're a normal person, so I can't really explain wrestling to you, and I can't explain what WCW was, but I the best analogy I was able to come up with was kind of like uh, Corey Haim in that WCW was a thing that existed and was really, really big for a very short period of time and made a lot of money during that period of time, but then had no idea what to do with it when it got there. And by the time there was kind of like, you know, your credit card got declined. It was already too late because the bills were piling up. And so that's why you check your statement online every month, kids. <laughs> so you're not, you end up like uh, the w... WCW World w- Championship w- Wrestling. <laughs> you know, I played the NES game. Uh, really? I didn't know any of the wrestlers. I was like, where's Hulk Hogan? But, but I that's, knew that yeah, it, was a, it was a cool he, game. He wouldn't have been on the WCW one. Um, yeah, and as I told you, you know what WWE is. You know who The Undertaker is. You know who John Cena is. You know who The Rock is and Steve Austin. So, uh, yeah, at one point in time, WCW almost put all those guys out of business. Like, it got that, like, they were that dominant for a period of time. But once it started coming downhill, 
it was like a fucking you know escalade you put in neutral on a steep hill it just didn't stop and what this was was their last ditch effort at maybe we can gain and garner some mainstream attention kind of get back what we had a year ago um so they were filming this in 1999 um and then in January of 2000, Time Warner, who always financially backed WCW, and is the reason WCW went on as long as it was, was because it was Ted Turner's project. He just threw fucking money at it like no one's business. So in January of 2000, Time Warner merged with AOL. AOL wanted nothing to do with pro wrestling. So they started phasing out the television shows, started advertising it less. And so there was this movie here that still needed to be released. And it was this thing that just kind of sat there. So you're telling me that wrestling and shitty internet services were not compatible? <laughs> it, huh. yeah, uh, you, yeah, it's surprising considering, you know, 85% of today's pro wrestling is streamed via <laughs> shitty internet. Oh, the irony. And, but yeah, AOL wanted nothing to do with it, and this movie, I don't want to say suffered from it, because I do love this movie basically because of how much it encapsulates what WCW was. Stupidity, unnecessary spending, <laughs> um, making a joke of pro wrestling. But yeah, so when it was released, they did it to very little fanfare. Had it been maybe a year or two earlier, I'm not saying this would have made $100 million, but it would have at least recouped its budget. Um, and yeah, it's not good. So in a way, you love this movie in spite of the movie itself. You love this movie like I love Eurotrip. Correct. Exactly. Um, our friend and uh, listener of the podcast, Reed, hates this movie because of what it does to pro wrestling. And I agree with that to a certain extent because it does make an absolute mockery of it. But like I said, you have to appreciate the fact that despite all that, they still want to protect Sting's character. And that's fucking <laughs> hilarious. Um, but... It when it was released due to the fact that there was no fanfare, they had to figure out something else to do, and they were just fucking throwing shit at the wall and waiting for something to stick at this point. So um, they put the world heavyweight title on David Arquette, and I know I make that joke all this time, but the same world title that was won by Hulk Hogan, um, Sting, Ric Flair, Vader, uh, you know, I could go on and on and on. David Arquette won it. For all our non-wrestling listeners, this is the moment like like when you found out what Kramer's first name was. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, so that's what that meant. They did a, a storyline on an episode of TV where he won the belt. And the guy who was writing for WCW at the time, it was a gentleman by the name of Vince Russo who... Who went on to shoot himself after <laughs> writing this. <laughs> exactly. He... Uh, he never cared about wrestling. He always he was a big New Yorker, and he always cared about the ratings, bro. And he, you know, didn't get him. Like he got the coverage he wanted because the next day, the cover USA Today had a blurb: David Arquette, World Heavyweight Champion, and WCW got publicity. They had fucking Kurt Russell and Courtney Cox on an episode of Nitro, like <laughs> talking about it and shit. Um, but so this is Courtney Cox when she's was with David Arquette. Okay, yeah. but to give you an insight into what happened, so. The month before would have been in April when this movie came out. There was a pay-per-view that they had by the name of Spring Stampede. And WCW was already on a decline. 115,000 people bought this pay-per-view. Um, so then following this, David Arquette won the World Heavyweight title. The movie like was being seen by more people. And then the next pay-per-view was a one by the name of Slamboree in which... They used the triple cage for the main event. They took it from the movie and used it. And David first time ever in history that it was for a, like a, a quote unquote real match that it was being used. Yeah, 
and uh, David Arquette was in the match. It was a triple threat with David Arquette, Diamond Dallas Page, and Jeff Jarrett. And the buy rate was 65000 literally halved in one month. <laughs> that does not happen in pro wrestling because you always have your core audience that no matter what, like WWE, Vince McMahon could go out on TV tomorrow and fucking kill a puppy and there will still be 200,000 people that buy the pay-per-view. So are you telling me this was a result of uh, one, the movie being shitty, or two, people reacting adversely to the fact that David Arquette was the champ? It was more the latter. The first one they could kind of stomach because it was uh, WCW's fan base, their core fan base, was good old Southern people that liked the wrestling. And they can stomach the fact that back there on the moving pictures, you know, they've got this <laughs> thing going on. But um, it's something that I wanted to prepare like that number for because. Uh, and even more example, the pay-per-view the month before, the live attendance was 13,000. The one with David Arquette was 7,000. Like, that drastic drop in numbers does not happen. It's a direct answer to what was going on. And So when David Arquette would appear in, uh, for these matches, was he David Arquette or was he playing his character from the movie? He was David Arquette. So he was not like a complete idiot. Okay, you're getting ahead because that comes the best part. Oh, oh okay. Okay, so at this slamber, so he's supposed to be David Arquette, this bumpkin, this fucking idiot. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. He's just being David Arquette. <laughs> Even when he won the belt on TV, he was like, I don't know. Like, so this pay per view match, um, he turns heel, which means he becomes a bad guy at the end of it. He helps the bad guy win the belt. And then on Nitro the night after, because uh, pay per views are always on Sunday, and then you have the Monday follow up. So on Nitro, he started the show the next night, and he cut a bad guy interview. He did like a, a heel promo, as they say. And I will be including it in this episode <laughs> because it's one of the most incredible things I've ever heard in my entire life. So by now, our, our listeners have already heard it. Um, is it. Is it before the No, they're going to have to wait. It's oh. going to be what plays at the end. Oh, okay. Because I want it in its entirety. It's about two <laughs> minutes long, and he talks about... You should have known better than to trust someone from Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and he's wearing this, and we'll have to put a picture of it up on the website, but he's wearing this ridiculous, like, tie-dye fucking fur coat. And, you know, for all the damage it did, we got that promo. So it kind of is okay and justified. It's a little thing sometimes. And to his credit, you know, he's still, he knows how much he's hated because of this. Um, but he's a huge, he's a legitimate huge wrestling fan. And according to like all the guys that were actual wrestlers in the company at the time, he was like really against it. He said, no, this would be stupid. Like, why the fuck are we doing this? And then the writers were like, oh, it'd be good for TV. But to his credit, you'll never see him sitting ringside without the belt. Cause when you win the belt, you get to keep it forever. Yeah. You, you get to keep a, at least a replica of it to know that you had the belt at one point in time. So if you see him ever ringside at a show, he'll always have his belt over his shoulder. And when people boo him, he just hams it up like a motherfucker. So props to him for it. Um, so he's like, uh, you know, the guy the, from Arrow. I think his name is Stephen Amell. Stephen Amell. Stephen Amell. Mm -hmm. So he was like the Stephen Amell of like that time. Like, if Stephen Amell had pinned John Cena and like won the title, yeah. <laughs> hey, it might happen. No. Well, I guess Cena's already <laughs> off into Hollywood. Uh, but no, like as much as like wrestling relies on celebrity involvement it was just like the time where it took it too far because no matter what there's like <laughs> jesus that's so like historic like the time that wrestling took it too far it was like i'm not saying wcw at that point in time they were beyond fucked but that was like the final death blow and uh 10 months afterwards the company was no more
Uh, maybe even less than that. Um, but it would be unfair to say that David Arquette killed WCW. No, he did. No, there are many things that killed WCW. Uh, guaranteed money being the number one. But um, it was it was their last, and you know that's what Ready Rumble to me encompasses. It was their last shot in the dark at like, all right, we like fucking chips are down. Let's just try it. Put it all on black. Like, let's see what happens. Put it all on Landor. <laughs> so, yeah. Ready to Rumble, as someone like yourself watching it, I could see, like, what what the fuck? It's and a me, shit movie. Yeah, me laughing and stuff. Like, what are you doing? But, like, to me... I mean, uh, you know, let's be fair. I, I laugh more than I've laughed at some other movies. I think I actually am positive I laugh more than I did with Black Sheep. Which wow. is another of your favorites. I mean, when uh, it's, when it's it's, a, it's not it's not a favorite. It's up there. <laughs> when uh, when David Arquette shows up dressed as a cop with the motorcycle and everything, I busted out laughing. But and all of Martin Landau's stuff is funny, if not because necessarily it's intentional. Landau. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, but it's not. Yeah, that doesn't mean that it's a good movie. No, it's not a good movie at all. Um, there's really funny things in it, and. Uh, I was surprised at how much I know of it verbatim because I was I found myself quoting along with a lot of it. But your father was so embarrassed by this movie <laughs> and by your knowledge of it that he couldn't even sit through it. We were uh, uh, Steam Tom Mattis was uh, with us for the first half of the movie, maybe, and then at some point he just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> when we got to the part where they're partying after he's gotten the contract for the well, jump around by House of Pain. Yes, please. he was like, well. I'm done with this. <laughs> and I I just thought, I, I get you. I understand. If I didn't have to record a podcast about this later, I'd probably do the same thing. With how many times I've watched it with like some of my wrestling friends and quoted it and shit, like watching it through the eyes that you and I watch movies too, it's so much different because I'm like, oh my God. Like... Uh, the music that plays like when they're watching the girls through like the peephole in their underwear brick house plays and it's like <laughs> so fucking painful. But yeah, um... Rose McGowan was hot. That's something we took away from this. Like, and some- well, we also took away the fact that the people that made this movie, so basically, like, what the wrestling conglomerate, it just there's not care for women, no, at all. No. Uh, you may have the the rapping grandma and Rose McGowan, and then there's like the two girls from the drive-through at the burger place, mm-hmm. but they're all painted in pretty and flattering lights. And uh, I was struggling to come up with that positive angle for their depiction on the on the first part of the podcast so i'm glad we didn't really get to that <laughs> well to be perfectly fair professional wrestling you know as we know it has existed for almost a hundred years now and we're just now almost to the point where we respect women so almost yeah almost. no it's not quite there uh they're still called divas so we're not <laughs> we're not quite there yet um but actually kind of sidebar uh when we we're recording i saw the uh, AT&T Stadium where WrestleMania is they decorated it for it's all full of dicks <laughs> no uh, actually they, they've got Roman Reigns Triple H Shane McMahon and The Undertaker the biggest decor is for the women's match it's the first time ever okay so Julio every year WrestleMania has four big matches and it's the first time ever that a women's match is being included as one of the big four because they finally I'm not saying it's directly the women's fault, but WWE's never hired women who know really what they're doing in terms of wrestling. So for the first time ever, they do, and they're pushing it, and it's... So what you're saying is all those feminists that are saying that there's no progress in this country, they don't know what they're talking about. Exactly. WrestleMania now features one of the four main matches is to women. Come on now. And I'm sure they'll be dressed appropriately. We're there. We're there, man. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, it's uh, there's like two big things that just made me squirm: uh, the portrayal of women and the only under- two, <laughs> yeah, three, three if you count the the you know the grandma Rose McGowan and then the girl that ends up fucking Scott Can <laughs> because oh god yeah he gives her a T-shirt as a present and, and then, then she's she like fucks I have, him. Yeah, yeah she's like I have a present for you too my vagina oh, it, Jesus that was that was really bad and then the. the the I wrote on my name my notes I started writing underlying and then was, I crossed that out. I was like no overt uh, uh, homophobia going throughout the movie. Oh, it's so it bad. Just, that was bad. And I think like even again going back to your dad, <laughs> there was the first time that there was a, a really dumb gay joke. He was like, "Was that necessary?" <laughs> <laughs> like, sir, would you like to be on the podcast? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was I was going to joke that really underneath all that, really there's a love story between. Uh, Scott Kahn and uh, and David Arquette, but no, it doesn't even work that way. No, it's it's just. I mean, it is juvenile. That's one of the reviewers called it that, and I I, I get it. You know, that's they really. It's a stupid fucking movie. It's um. There was a movie released in nineteen eighty eight eighty nine called No Holds Barred with Hulk Hogan and um, Debo Tiny Lister. Um, I don't know who that is. The I know Hulk Hogan. You know, you've seen Friday, right? No. Uh, Debo, okay. Uh, the big menacing black prisoner in Dark Knight who takes the device and throws it out of the boat. I know that. Yeah, okay. So that's uh, that's Debo. That's Tiny Lister. Um, was basically kind of what this tried to do was capitalize on the momentum that these wrestling stars had at the time. But it's nowhere near as like sexist. It's just a stupid fucking... It's like over right, the top. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dumb in that way. Yeah. But it's one of the things where, like, you just kind of shake... It, it, well, I mean, juvenile, you know, it's like like they're kids. You can't mm-hmm. even get angry at them because you're just like, oh, you poor bastard. You know, It's so uh, fa- It's so fascinating, too. It's like, what is the audience you're going for? Because, like, the jokes work for, like, the 4 <laughs> to 11 demographic, but then, like, the visuals are for, like, the 18 to 34 <laughs> demographic. So... Um, I guess that's pro wrestling, but it's uh, it's an interesting film. It is. Uh, I I don't understand how Martin Lando and their and that there. makes no sense at all. Even Joe Pantoliano, I mean, he doesn't With his have an pigtails and cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, he might have been like, uh, maybe he likes wrestling. I don't know. Uh, maybe Martin Lando likes wrestling. Well, who doesn't? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, was, okay. I was about to say like. If you had just watched that movie just by yourself, like staying up late at night, you would have no idea the backstory that I provided to you. Well, no, I wouldn't have made it all the way to the end. But yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, that's but that's with like a lot of movies. I wouldn't have made it past the first twenty minutes of Black Sheep. That's true. I keep bringing up Black Sheep, like the I know <laughs> that's going to be like the ongoing. <laughs> and then we're always going to come back to hey, smoking aces ain't that bad. <laughs> no, smoking aces is great, especially uh, compared. You watch something like this, and they're like comparable in rating, and it's like that is so bizarre. But that is the whole point of the show. Well, Tomatoes, I song. guess. And the, but that I'm so endlessly fascinated how this fucking thing isn't at like fucking seven percent or something. I know uh, the latest uh, Divergent movie. You know Divergent that series of books. They made with mm-hmm. movies, and I think it's like the third one is out now, and I think it's the last one. And it's a ten percent. When I pulled out the app for Rent Tomatoes, it was like ten percent, uh, which means that it's considered even worse than this movie, and that can't be that, right. No, that can't possibly be <laughs> yeah. accurate. And what's weird is like some of these movies that have some years on them that we go to don't have that many reviews. This had like almost a hundred reviews, eighty three by yeah. the count of that app. It might be even more in the uh, the actual website. 
So that uh, means 83 people besides us have watched this movie. They felt strongly enough to get on their computers and review it. And there's some. it's not just 83 random people. They're like serious critics <laughs> that – Felt the need. Was it a slow week? And that's how they it must have been. But that was that's that's crazy. Uh, I did not see it in theater. Yeah. Well, I mean, neither it, did many other. It people. was pro. I'm assuming, given its its take and everything, it wasn't in theater for much. You no, know, for too long. It couldn't it was, have been. Yeah. yeah, it's probably like two weeks. And then I know, like internationally, it was the straight to DVD or straight to video at the time. <laughs> yeah, the David Arquette international fan base doesn't extend. Uh, <laughs> the, too far, man. He goes to Guam. It's like Beatlemania. I'm telling you. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm curious about. I guess now that I've seen the movie, it kind of explains why David Arquette became the symbol for this whole blip in, in wrestling history, and not Scott Khan, because really they're they're sharing mm-hmm. on screen about as much. They're both the the heroes here. And, but yeah, it's just Scott that, Khan was never on the television show. He was not, not even like his red. He was too busy strangling his agent. <laughs> uh, I have to say, watching the movie, he doesn't seem to be as into it as uh, David Arquette. No, David Arquette goes for it. Mm-hmm. He really, he is committed to being a full blown idiot on screen. But Scott Can is like Bradley Cooper in Hangover Three. Exactly. It <laughs> that dude. Seriously, I was watching it. I sort of like constantly. I would catch him in scenes where. He would be in the same shot as as David Arquette, and Scott Ken was not all the way in. He was like he was like at the table read. He was you know he he had a smirk that that kind of revealed that he was not buying any of this bullshit. It's it, it kind of it would have taken me out of the movie if I wasn't out of the movie already, mm-hmm. you know. But, but because I was not buying it from the beginning, I was able to just take apart his performance. And yeah, he he's not there. Uh, it's yeah. Watching this with you and beginning it with my dad, I was like, "Fuck!" I was like, <laughs> "I really, I really wish like my friend AJ was here or Wes, so we could like laugh about this because uh, it's exactly the type of movie that it's like Rocky Horror to a certain extent. Unless you know when to throw the popcorn at the screen, it's not going to be fun. <laughs> like so, it's... I had fun. I've had I had more fun than you know than than what. <laughs> I was gonna say black sheep, but but no, let's let's take we, it We had back. more fun than Paul Blart. Paul Blart. I was exactly about to say Paul Blart. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely. I I laughed, and this movie didn't even have uh, my boy uh, that has a new HBO show now. Our boy. Our uh, boy. Oh yeah. Uh, shit. What's his Dude, name? Dude, I sent you that picture, and you were you were uh, yeah, he's so happy. Fizbo's partner. I'm trying to remember what his name. <laughs> Fizbo's partner. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that guy. But yeah. No, that, that was cool. That was fun because uh, there would really be no other sense in doing this besides a bonus episode for WrestleMania. So I guess for WrestleMania 33 next year, we're going to have to do like The Wrestler. Or the something. Wrestler. We'll get like really down on The Wrestler. Which would be hard to do because it, exactly what I was saying to you while we were watching this, it's like it's so funny how The Wrestler can take scenes like in this where two guys are putting a match together. I did air quotes. And... Um, <laughs> It makes it so elegant and so well presented, and then this, it's just like fart jokes and shit, and it's just like yeah. But I have to say, I that was almost if I my favorite aspect of this movie was that moment when like before he gets betrayed, mm-hmm. when he's his double interaction crossed. double cross as Excuse we say me. as we say in the industry. Yeah, uh, he 
and, and I think I kind of recognized what was going on because I watched The Wrestler when I realized that, oh, he's talking about like what's happening. If I hadn't seen The Wrestler, I probably would have wondered what the hell's going on. Why are they talking about stuff? Even though I know it's staged, like in my mind, I would have thought that, I don't know. You know in my mind, you rehearse it like a play and yeah. then it comes out. But no, the, it's a little more fluid than that on, when you're mm-hmm. out there on the arena or on the mat. And uh, I, I actually enjoy that, you know, when uh, Oliver Platt is there with the other guy and they're kind of talking and joking because mm-hmm. nobody can hear them as they're fighting. Yeah. That was like, eh, that's, I mean, it's not good, but it's amusing. Yeah. Uh, You'll catch that not so much anymore because everything's so micromanaged. But if you watch some of those old matches and situations like that, you'll catch guys. You can't tell what they're saying, but they'll pull them into a hold and they'll start laughing because they're just fucking joking <laughs> together out there and stuff. So. <laughs> God, wrestling's awesome. But um, yeah, so I appreciate you sticking around for this bonus episode. Uh, we'll be putting this out probably a week from today. Before the day before my vacation, we are like begins. very precisely dating the release of this episode. Well, because it's not after wrestling after WrestleMania, it'll be a little weird. Well, and then too, it's like I'm not as worried about cutting this and making it as professional as say modern times because we're not dealing with the same level of film here. So <laughs> uh, it's not something that we have to cut down to be exactly finite, but. Yeah, I'll have this out. Uh, we'll have this out next Wednesday. Um, I will have an aneurysm if uh, if this ends up being like our most downloaded episode. Of I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, man. If we hashtag at WrestleMania that week, we'll we'll get some li- listens. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Cornette maybe listen to this just to like, and he'll call us up just to vent about how much he fucking hates this movie. And they might get a whole bunch of like death threats as well. It's like, how dare you? <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Uh, anyone, yeah, there's not. You're not gonna find anyone who's gonna like defend there, this. There are some David Arquette fans out there. So there are. <laughs> they probably don't even know that he's a former world heavyweight <laughs> champion. But uh, yeah, and then the week after that will be another 48 hours. Yes. Yeah. So we'll try to get these out in pretty rapid fire succession. And uh, I don't think we covered it though uh, for episode 28. We are tackling the Green Lantern. The Green Lantern, yes, that's. Uh, I don't know if we, yeah, I don't know if we've done it on air, but it seems appropriate. We're we're approaching summer. The what we've known now for a few years as the it, the time of the blockbuster superhero movie. Ryan Reynolds just had an awesome blockbuster Still need movie. To see Deadpool. Yeah. Uh, regardless of what you think of it, the fact is that it really is a rebound for him. Mm-hmm. After Green Lantern flopped, and I think it's time to open people's eyes and make them see Green Lantern for what it really was, which was an awesome superhero movie <laughs> that uh, that paved the way for uh, Ryan Reynolds' more risque take on a superhero. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited to do it. And we are a little under 24 hours away from uh, Dawn of Justice. Julio basically... He knows I won't go see it unless he makes me go see it with him. Yes. So we're going to go see it tomorrow evening. And based on the reviews, you know, everything looks bad, but that's not something that couldn't have been predicted. As I said, this movie looked like utter dog shit. At the from same day one. time, we're discussing this on a web show, on a podcast where we make fun of Run Tomatoes. So, really, can we take the low Run Tomatoes score seriously? No, but I, I can't take Zack Snyder seriously either. Dude, a year from now, we're going to be making a Dawn of Justice <laughs> episode where we'll both be praising the movie <laughs> on both parts of the podcast. <laughs> Should have been a 10-year embargo, man. No one can make a Batman film. 
Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to No matter to it. what happens, it's going to be interesting. As our friend, as a, the aforementioned friend of the podcast, Reed, he texted me and he put it well. Best case scenario, it's good. Worst case scenario, material for years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I am... I'm not going to say I'm pumped in the way that I'm pumped for, like, I don't know, Civil War. But I'm pumped because I... Not superhero movies. I'm done, man. Dude, this is like a new Spider-Man in town. Oh, yeah. I saw the fucking internet implode about that shit, too. Yeah, it was pretty... It is... Okay, if I may go on a little tangent right here at the very end of the episode, the internet needs to chill the fuck out with spoilers. Here's... Okay, do you remember watching Iron Man? I don't know how you came to watch Iron Man. The first one? Yeah, the first one. I screened it, and they sent it in padlocks, and our booth manager at the time fucking took bolt cutters and cut them off. <laughs> okay, we uh, we couldn't figure out how to open the locks, and we didn't you know, cut the, the locks, but we eventually screened it, and I had no idea what was going to happen at the end. So when Samuel L. Jackson shows mm-hmm. up as Nick Fury talking about the Avengers, it was just it was mind-blowing. In on a scale that hasn't been replicated ever since, you can nope. have all the 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 you know after post credits scenes that you want, but if you keep spoiling shit online, then it doesn't have the same you know. It's like at this point you wouldn't be able to do that. The God, okay, I remember that. What was that? Oh seven, uh, the Iron Man. Yeah, I was still in conversation, so yeah, at least oh seven. Yeah, because uh, I just remember that. And I was like, fuck, and then like I was like. When, 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 when? Like, I was so excited about I it. I remember, like, telling everybody at the theater, like, I was like, you need to stay for the end credits. Now, here's this new Captain America movie, and they already spoiled that Peter Parker was going to be in it. They said Peter Parker didn't say Spider-Man. The least they could have done, if they're going to have Spider-Man show up in costume, is keep him, just save it. Just have, like, a, you know... Peter Parker taking pictures of somebody. Or right, something. no, or if you're going to have Spider-Man in the movie, don't put it in the trailer. Why do you need to put it in the trailer? It, everybody's going to go watch Captain America anyway. Yeah. And, and you already said that Peter Parker's going to be there. So if they're curious about the kid playing Spider-Man, they can go watch and they know you're going to see, you know, Peter Parker. Bigger problem with this goddamn J- Dawn of Justice bullshit is that <laughs> fucking four-minute trailer they made in which Wonder Woman and Doomsday show right. up. Right, it, it all ties in. And I understand. Zod. Right, I understand that you can't, like, there's something that are impossible to keep quiet these days. Well, do you so, remember the Dark Knight trailer? Like, there was, like, one clear shot of Heath Ledger's Joker in it. Right, you wouldn't be able to do that now. Now yeah. they just have to, like, promote the shit out of it. So so they cast the, the, the woman from the Fast and Furious uh, as Wonder Woman, and then it's like, well, now we have to show you what she looks like as Wonder Woman, and then, well, now we have to put her in the trailer. Why? Everybody's going to go see the movie anyway. Mm-hmm. Save some surprises. Save Doomsday. You don't have to show me Doomsday. You know, like we were talking, maybe Doomsday shows in the first five minutes and they'll be amazing, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. No. So, same thing. Do you need to show me Spider-Man? I was going to go see the movie anyway, and I would have loved to be able to just be surprised by this movie, by this completely out of left field cameo, like the Nick Fury thing. But I can't because even if I don't see the trailer... The internet is going to spoil it for me unless I completely cut myself off from every single online interaction. It's impossible to not see the the little Spider-Man meme that everybody's made. They, they post the trailer everywhere. They post pictures everywhere. They made comments everywhere. And I understand that some people like it, but I think that the studios at this point should work a little harder on preserving the surprise. That's why I love what they did with the first Star Wars. I love J.J. Abrams. I'm pretty bummed that they said that they're not going to be as secretive 
uh, with the next Star Wars movie as they were with this one. It's funny. I was just talking about uh, fucking uh, Force Awakens with someone at work today, and I was just basically after 10 minutes of talking, I was like, fuck, I want to watch that movie again. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, exactly. I agree completely with what you say about that. And Yeah, um, and I understand. I mean, yeah, the second time I watched the movie, whichever it is, the surprise is not going to be a surprise, but nothing takes away the surprise from the beginning. Dude, I was telling you about fucking Force Awakens. Um, I thought the movie was going to end when Ray and Chewie take off in the Millennium Falcon just because I've seen so many of these fucking goddamn Marvel <laughs> movies that I have to wait to the credits or something. And despite all that, when Luke turns around and takes his hood off, I was like, fuck yes like i was just so fucking happy yeah. yeah i'm so sick of these fucking marvel avengers movies dude i was fucking done after by the time i got to that last avengers movie and a lot of that is just i'm done listening to people talk about it and i'm done with this like superhero movement that's going on right now and like deadpool i, ge- I legitimately want to see um what's the x-men apocalypse days yeah. of apocalypse or yeah. whatever apocalypse i think it's apocalypse apocalypse okay well, yeah but yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's so frustrating because you, the other thing me and this uh, girl at work were talking about was the people today don't understand. In 2000, when that first X-Men movie came out, that shit was unfucking heard of. <laughs> and like we got nothing in the trailer. All we got was that one famous shot of Mystique turning into Wolverine during a spin <laughs> kick. Like, And now, yeah, we're everything's getting spoiled in the trailers, and yeah, yeah, I, I'm just I've, taking your rant to another level, right? I, I see. I'm the opposite. I'm still very much into superhero movies. I'm just against the marketing of them, and I try to keep myself as marketing free as possible. That's why every time I ask, somebody asks me like, "Did you watch the trailer?" I'm like, "No." If I watch the trailer, it's gonna be when I'm watching a movie, and I just can't escape it, and it's there. And at least I can say that, well, I didn't see it coming, mm-hmm. you know, before the movie, and I and I saw it on the big screen, and whatever, you know. But there's uh, there is something to be said for watching a movie without knowing anything. I just watched uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, you know the. Cloverfield like side sequel or whatever and uh, and they did the same thing where they just kind of tried to keep everything under wraps and uh, and it's just a very cool experience watching a movie not really knowing what's going to happen what to expect you don't have you know it still happen that you watch the trailer and you remember moments from the trailer and then while you're watching the movie you're just waiting for those moments to happen so you know I wouldn't call this a successful achievement in film or a masterpiece or anything like that but I went into Unfriended Cold. I read right. I read the synopsis of the movie. I read the plot. I didn't see a trailer or anything like that. I went in cold, and it was one of, like, in recent memory, one of my most enjoyable experiences going to a movie theater just because I had no idea what I was going to see. Yes. I think that there is uh, that is what's becoming a, a lost art. And I, I don't hold any hopes that it's going to change because I understand why they did the Spider-Man reveal on the Civil War trailer. It's because... Batman vs Superman was coming out. They Marvel needed to like just get the spotlight back onto them. Despite the fact that it is in, undeniable that it would be a better movie, like I don't. <laughs> right, right, but it it doesn't matter to them. You know, it's just like oh, people are talking about the, the, you know. Oh, Zack Snyder's not directing it. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's just at this point, there's nothing that I can say or anybody can say because in the end, no matter what my rant is, I'm gonna go you know watch Civil War when it comes out. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. But uh, but yeah, I wish that there was more s- secrets. There's lots of things you can do to promote a movie without spoiling the big surprises. Um, and like last shout out to Tom Mattis on this, but that's one of the film stories he always tells me. He says no, no film experience he's ever had in his life can ever or will ever compare to going to see Star Wars without having seen anything. 
just like word of mouth, no trailers, anything like that. Like he went to it not knowing what to expect and just watched it. And that's like you and I can't literally know what that's like. Right. No, at this point, it's it's very hard to go into a movie unless you're going to like a film festival and catching one of those like really weird like indie movies that have no hype be- behind them. You really know pretty much what to expect. There's there's some surprises, but the big moments are usually already spoiled. So yeah, that would be awesome to have that again. But I mean, that's not that's not well, what like we, we talked about when we did our Jaws episode too. Like the audiences that just went to that, like, well, what's this going to be about? And then like fucking heart attacks in the theater <laughs> and shit. Yeah, Psycho uh, is the same way. Yeah, I mean something like this. Like I, I, you know, I didn't watch a trailer like the movie we just did. Yeah. Ray Trumbull. <laughs> I was surprised when <laughs> when uh, David Arquette came back in his motorcycle. <laughs> I was. So it's a bit of a different scope than Jaws or Psycho or Star Wars. But still, there is something to the movie-going, movie-watching experience that has exactly what surprise. I said. Like, Unfriended is not an Oscar winner, but going into a movie not knowing anything that's going to happen and like being pleasantly surprised is great. Um, that has been your contrarian's rant. Yeah. And putting a pin on it, I never saw a trailer for Drive when I saw Drive. Uh, I don't think I had either. And God knows Drive's one of my favorite films, so... It's all right. I'm just waiting for the criterion. <laughs> Fuck you, boy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, yeah, man. We definitely went over on that, but we, we got <laughs> off going there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, watch WrestleMania. Enjoy it. Uh, if you sign up for the WWE Network, it's free this year because... They're fucking idiots, and their biggest show of the year, they're going to give away for free. But See whatever. if you can spot Alex Mattis uh, somewhere. Scream, yelling at Roman Reigns. I'll be out there. I'll be dressed up like Sasha Banks, so you can find me. <laughs> um, but Julio, again, I greatly thank you for joining me along here for this bonus episode. Um, I, I had so much fun. It was great. <laughs> and then uh, we'll, we'll I'll see you again soon. We'll be tackling the Green Lantern with uh, Peter Sarsgaard being the only one who's in on the joke. (laughs) (laughs) For the meantime, uh, that's going to do it for us on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Y'all take care. Enjoy WrestleMania. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. And Tank Abbott was in on the thing. How about that? Is he all right? Sorry, Paige. I really am sorry. Canyon. Oh, damn, sorry. But you should know better than to trust someone from Hollywood. What the? You know, 
When I was on the set of Ready to Rumble with Paige, I told him that I had a dream to be a wrestler. And he said, Shit! He said you'd get hurt, but guess what? You got hurt, Paige. Ah. I don't think he's had his medication. I got one thing to say to you. I was the heavyweight champion of the world! Thanks to my buddy, Eric Bishop! The King! EJE, baby! What an actor! So put that in your corn pipe and smoke it!